Welcome to episode nine of season three of the Willow Center podcast. Before we dive into this month's topic, we wanted to provide just a brief trigger warning. We do get into some difficult subjects, some sensitive topics and stories on this episode. So if you have any uh, past trauma, especially as it relates to suicidality or violence, we invite you to uh, take care of yourself while you listen to this one or feel free to skip it if now is not the right time. Thanks so much. everybody welcome back to the willow center podcast this is season three episode nine and today we're talking about the topic of mental health and violence I'm so stoked to introduce you to our guest here in just a moment my name is chase cotton i'm the community director here at the willow center along with my colleague hi i'm mason christie i'm the engagement specialist here at the willow center all right we're gonna go ahead and dive in here eric eric jensen hi welcome there. why don't you go hi. ahead and introduce yourself tell us a little bit of background on you your passion your career then we'll dive into the topic Okay, sounds good. Hi, uh, my name is Eric Jensen, and um, I currently work at uh, Family Promise of Hendricks County. Um, I'm a housing advocate there for people's experiencing homelessness, um, people with mental illness, people who have been previously incarcerated, people who struggle with addiction, substance use disorder, alcoholism. Um, those are all areas of my life that I specialized in um, with firsthand experience. So, uh, you know, growing up, I uh, grew up in Fishers, right? And um, mental illness was never anything that was ever addressed in my family. Um, you know, my, my father didn't believe in it. He viewed anybody with a mental illness as a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of addressing it, right, like, a, like somebody should, um, we just didn't talk about it. Um, you know, on multiple occasions, uh, my father said things like, if, if, if your child has ADD or ADHD, that just means you need to beat them harder. Um, and that right there shows me just a lack of understanding of mental illness and, and what we really That's need to do. That's an understatement, man. Yeah, for, for sure. For sure, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, as a child, I didn't realize it. I didn't know. Sure. You know, what I realized was at 14, um, you know, if I could drink this beer, it'd make me feel better on the inside about what was going on at home. Um, and then that was a perpetual snowball effect, right? It one, then what does two do, uh, et cetera. So, um, you know, I, I wound up through, through homelessness, right through, through all of this. I drank for 20 years hard. Yeah. I used substances for 15 of those years. And, uh, you know, that, that did lead me directly to homelessness. I never addressed my mental illnesses, my depressions, my anxieties that are severe, right? And um, so coming out of homelessness, right, I, I gave up all my, all my addictions and I said, hey, I got I to gotta do this someone else's way. And part of doing that, part of shedding that exoskeleton, that skin that I had, right, was turning myself in and saying, hey, I need some help. I need yeah. some help with, with my head. I need some help with, with what's going on inside of me. Um, so so that's, that, that's what happened after that. I started addressing my depression, anxiety, and, and uh, worked out of homelessness, man. And so you go through this whole process, you, you seek out help, and then how do you get your position at Family Promise? And what is your position? Can you break that down a little bit for us? Right, absolutely. So um, I, I, I worked in homelessness, exiting homelessness, because I realized that was where my drive and my passion was. You know, I saw so many injustices, so many marginalized people, continually marginalized. Definitely. 
mental illness not being addressed, substance use disorders not being addressed. Um, and then I looked at myself and I realized I'm equipped to do all of this. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I worked uh, in Indianapolis and Marion County for a while. And um, then I, I saw this opportunity out at Family Promise. Julie kind of sought me out and said, uh, said, hey, I really want you on my team. You know, um, you've, you've got all the qualifications that I'm looking for to fill this position. Come and join me. And it took her a year to get me, uh, but she got me. Yeah. Um, and so I'm a housing. Julie's pretty good at that, isn't she? Julie's fantastic. <laughs> Persistence is her thing. She gets what she wants, doesn't we, she? We stand Julie Randall around here. Julie's yeah. great. Yeah. No, it's all right. She's a good person to know. Good. So you, uh, what was the title? You were about to tell us the title of your position. Yeah, I'm a housing advocate. Um, I do all sorts of things. I, I not only just house people. I take people from completely unsheltered homelessness, and and I address any barriers that may be preventing their housing, and then I attempt to get them housed after addressing any barriers that that we need to get them into housing and then continue to address barriers once they're housed uh, so that they can increase their stability and and viability uh, long term in their units and their apartments homes whatever and uh, th this is not the topic of this month at all but i would just like to ask one follow-up question on that what are some common barriers that you see uh, that you uh, often help people work through well, we're going to discuss that today. This is actually the topic of, of our conversation, and, and it is primarily uh, mental illness, yeah. right? Um, mental illness, uh, especially out here in Hendricks County, is one of the largest barriers that I've seen. Substance use disorders, um, those are generally co-occurring, but we'll, we'll discuss all that here in a little bit. Yeah, well, I appreciate all your hard work, man. Thanks for, sure. for what you do. Yeah. Thank you, guys. So uh, the topic today is, is the connection between mental health and violence. Uh, and the reason why we chose this topic to discuss um, especially as it relates to, uh, you know, our, our, our neighbors and community members that have lived experience of homelessness as well, since there's, as you've alluded to, so much connection between mental illness and homelessness. Yeah. Um, in, in your experience, in your work, uh, have you seen any link between mental health struggles and violence in, in, uh, in particular, like the perpetration of such? Have you seen any link when uh, it comes to People being violent with each other, people being violent towards themselves, um, being, uh, people being violent towards the public, and a, an internal struggle of mental health at all. Yeah, so that's a you know that's a great question there, Chase. Yeah, I, I absolutely have seen a little bit, but let me let me be explicitly clear and say, um, when I see you know correlations between uh, violence and mental illness, there's almost always a co-occurring. Uh, issue right there and oftentimes that is alcoholism substance use disorder things like that so do i see it yes i see it it when i see it is it only mental illness almost never it's yeah. almost never just mental illness and if it is it's an smi it's a severe mental illness we're not talking about depression anxiety we're talking about schizophrenia bipolar things like that um so, yeah, and, and not just a link with somebody who has mental illness, but a link for maybe their partner or their friend or their roommate. Um, and, and especially with, again, with the co-occurring uh, disorders like addiction, I think that that's definitely um, that's where we see it the most. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned the difference between serious mental illness and standard mental illness, things mm -hmm. like depression, anxiety versus things like schizophrenia, things that are more psychoactive in nature, et cetera. And that being a differential when it comes to perpetration of violence. But I think something that um, comes to mind or may come to mind for a lot of our listeners is how sensationalized violence is in the news, in media. And it might be an understatement to say that our culture is kind of obsessed with violence in a way. But I, I feel like I feel like with that obsession comes some misinformation, 
So have you noticed in your experience any misinformed ideas or stigma surrounding the idea that violence is often the result of or caused by underlying mental illness as it's so often presented you know, in the wake of a school shooting, for example, or any other violence that's perpetrated and ends up on the news? Right. So um, I think Americans are um, living in a state of fear sometimes of an event occurring or a shooting occurring. And it's due to that fear that people then go and look at uh, qualities that are different uh, in the school shooter or than themselves. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They, they look for any differences they can find. Well, this person has, you know, schizophrenia. That, that's not fair. This person also has um, some completely different socioeconomic background uh, differences in their lives. Um, And I think that um, Americans just constantly live in the fear. And that's why it's sensationalized on the news because it draws clicks. It draws the the, the looks, the listeners. Um, And again, I think the news and these people try to put people into two different sections, people with mental illness and people who don't have mental illness. And the problem is that's a yes or a no answer. And the truth is I view it on a scale. I don't view mental illness as a black and a white, a yes and a no. It's on a scale. People have it to different varying degrees. So drastic. Um, And then they try to link people together and say, oh, you have bipolar disorder. You have bipolar disorder. You two are the same. No, they're not the same. There are so many other factors involved in all of this that are more uh, prevalent in people committing violence than mental illness. Yeah. And I think that's a really beautiful way to break it down when you're talking about the different biological, psychological, social factors that play in to why people may or may not commit violence. And you you mentioned this piece of you want to see what's different about the person who committed this heinous act versus yourself. But you maybe, I think for many people in the public, they don't want to see what's the same. Oh man, that person was really isolated. They grew up in a, like maybe in a different socioeconomic background. They really didn't have a, a, any support system and they see all that. And that is so prevalent now. And it's like, well, I could relate to all that. And you know, that plus mental illness plus so much more probably led to that act of violence as opposed to just the mental illness itself which is what's sold by the news so not really a question they're more of a statement i don't know if you have anything to add to it right you know i think again the socioeconomic background differences of you know people in the world right um we know that people who are of um lower affluency right um might be unemployed um, they might come from a single parent background. They might have um, parents with substance use disorders that have never been addressed. People, parents with mental illness that have never been addressed because yeah. it's just not available in their communities. These types of helps don't exist at all. Mm-hmm. And if you do go seek that help, you're stigmatized. Mm-hmm. What? Why? Yeah. That, that doesn't make sense to me. Somebody's actively going to get help and improving themselves. But we... we People come from so many different backgrounds. There's so many other, uh, you know, varying um, factors in this. Yeah, I think the maybe the main takeaway then is don't believe everything you read on the news, right? Anything that makes a good headline, like such and such depressed per- depressed person pulled a gun, or such and such person because of this factor in their life, this single factor, this is what it all boils down to. This is why they committed this act of violence. Don't believe that hype. It ain't true. Yeah, they so they say, you know, if they say it's mental illness or it's drugs or it's um, 
I mean, wh- whatever, uh, anger. But but the truth is, you know, the one thing all of these, we'll just use school shooters, all these people have in common, they're white men. Yeah, which is a hard thing for a lot of our society to hear, right? Let's be honest and just take a look at that and, and dig from there. So, yeah. all right. Yeah. So let's get into the data a little bit then, right? So to, to the point of what we all feel very passionately about, right? It's clear we have a, a point we're trying to prove here, but... Um, no point is worth proving without uh, science, in my opinion. So do you have any, any data points that you might want to share related to these ideas? Any trends we should be aware of as far as mental health and violence, any connection or lack thereof goes? So, yeah, I think, um, you know, when you, when you talk about the general public, the chances of somebody in the general public experiencing violence, um, this is per a recent study that I took a look at, was about 0.8% pretty low it's 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 pretty low right but when you add in a mental illness right it does get five times higher at 2.9 percent wait five times higher that you might five be a times victim of or uh the aggressor in okay either so or either or either five or times higher. but when alcohol is involved and alcohol is the only factor it's 10 percent fascinating it's crazy when you look at that isn't it isn't it I, I really think that substance use disorders and alcoholisms and, and addictions really play such a major role because people do, um, just like I did. I, I self-medicated for decades, right. right? And I didn't know any difference. And I'm, and I'm deep in this hole, and there's no way out. So I just do more. I don't look at this other thing called therapy, help, counseling, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Um, because I didn't have anybody to guide me that direction, right? right? Um, so... I do. I think there's such a huge role just between um, alcoholism and 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 violence. Yeah. Yeah. 32% of of all murders involved alcohol. 32%. 32% involved. Oh that could be from the person who's deceased or the person who uh, committed the crime. Wow. Alcohol was a factor in one way or another. Wow. That's crazy. That's, that's pretty damning information. That's very damning information. So we're sitting over here talking about mental illness and violence, and I'd like to talk about substance use disorder and the violence that it creates while somebody has mental illness. We're not treating um, somebody who's mentally ill. We're treating a human being with a disease. Right. That's what we're treating. Um, and that's how we need to look at this. We don't need to ostracize somebody and, and stick them in their own little corner. Make them stare at the wall for a while. We need to invite them in the group and communicate with them. I think communication is one of the biggest things that we're just lacking overall in this whole battle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, and again, misinformation. I think people are so quick to say, I'm not like that. You're like that. Um, I'm nothing like you. Right. No, you're, you're completely incorrect. You have everything in common with that person, but maybe one thing. Right. That's how we should look at this. Right. That's huge. Uh, you you kind of just asked this or answered this a little bit, but uh, maybe we can break it down a little bit more. How often are people who struggle with mental health the victims of or survivors of violence? So obviously, when you look at the data, it increases, but maybe from your experience or what? Um, yeah. Yeah. So so I was homeless for six years uh, in Indianapolis, right? And um, during that time. I lived in all sorts of types of, of homelessness, and I experienced all sorts of types of people who were also experiencing homelessness with me, right? Yeah. Um, so oftentimes, I would see people who uh, are both uh, experiencing mental illness, um, whether, again, that's co-occurring with substance use disorder is, is 
know, kind of related, but they would oftentimes be in arguments together, be in whatever together. And what I realized is it doesn't always take two people who have mental illness. Sometimes it could just be one person and the other person simply a partner and becomes a victim. And I think we need to um, not only address the people who suffer from mental illness, but also address uh, their partners, too. Again, I think communication is so important between partners. Just that that communication is so great. You know, when when somebody has um, a mental illness, say schizophrenia, and I know we're using this a lot. When somebody has schizophrenia, we deal with clients who have hallucinations who have these real manic periods, these manic episodes. Yeah. And, and, and the truth is, um, if people don't know about that, if their partner doesn't know about that and they're not communicating, their partner can't act appropriately and support them in the manner in which they need to be supported. Right. So there could be a lack of understanding, even amongst people who thought they knew each other or trusted each other. And I can see how with the trauma of, of homelessness, on top of that sort of relational conflict, these issues could be exacerbated pretty exponentially, right? Because now we're not worried just about the symptoms we're experiencing and the lack of understanding we're receiving from those around us, but also the fact that I still need to try to survive here. <laughs> right. That's right. a that's lot abso- all That's at absolutely once. it. Um, pe- you know, when, when somebody has a, a, a manic uh, episode, right, that generally means that somebody else's life just became very manic also. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, that could be a case manager, that could be your wife, your, your boss, right? A coworker. Um, oftentimes when people do get manic, they're not the only ones involved. Um, and, and again, I'm going to tell you this from my, my personal experience and also witnessing with my clients now and when I was homelessness, um, just the addition of any co-occurring condition to mental illness exacerbates the issue. They work synergistically yeah. and, um, I, yeah, it's it's important to to be aware and um, yeah, I think that's important. I appreciate that. I think we'd be remiss uh, if, if we didn't mention the fact that that self harm and suicidality is a form of violence, right? And it is intimately connected to mental health struggles. Um, and I, I think that being a victim of yourself counts here for this question. You know, like I think experiencing those self-harming thoughts I've is, been there. is a violent thing in itself you know it's 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 a struggle it's hard to live that way and uh there are there are many of us who have either survived those thoughts or have survived loved ones um who who may or may not have lost their lives tragically to that um and there is a connection there when it comes to things like like depression and anxiety uh, and that that is a that is a thing that happens to oneself and one's family that's not an act that's committed towards someone else, which is why we try and avoid words like committed when it comes to like suicidality, right? That is a tragic death. That is not a crime that's been committed. Um, and I think sometimes uh, the sensational media does a pretty bad job at talking about that issue in, uh, as well. Would you, would you agree with that or have anything to add to that end? Yeah, I would say that the, uh, the media in general is um, generally uninformed and um, uh, not educated on any of the things that, that we really deal with. Um, man, suicide's such a difficult topic, right? Yeah. And that is absolutely a form of self-harm. That is a form of violence to yourself. Um, and I absolutely know what that is like, right? Having, having mental illness, struggling with that. You know, there was a while there, you know, I went, I went off all of my medication and I was just, I was self-medicating. Right. Um, and, and then I got to the point where I'm like, well, I'm, 
I'm, I'm really, I'm really messed up at this point. Like I'm not, I'm not on my mental health meds. I am self-medicating with, with heroin and alcohol. And, um, that was the moment that I had a gun to my head because I realized that my life was over in one form or another. And I thought that that meant physically it was over. What I didn't realize is by putting the gun down, I also dropped all of my addictions and was able to focus on my mental health. Um, so yeah, I think, I think suicide and mental illness do go hand in hand, um, but what I also think goes hand in hand is lack of communication with the mental illness and suicide. Right. Um, I, I think it is so important that loved ones be informed, partners be informed. Um, they, they just look for signs. That's being supportive. Right. And I think that's what we really need um, more of to help people get out of this. And, and not thinking that you know an attempted suicide is a stigmatized thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not. Um, it's something that I talk about freely. I don't have any shame in it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we appreciate you sharing your story with us, man. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned communication, and that is such a key for so many people. And But starting that conversation can be really hard for people. Uh, having the words to say is can, just can be so difficult. And so I, I think that's where the benefit of counseling can really come into play is just being able to have that conversation get started with a professional and then you get to you can have those words to say to a partner to a family member to your support system um and it's just i think that's part of the beauty of it at least in my opinion um do do, are there any predetermining factors that you would say play a role in the likelihood of someone perpetrating violence in addition to alcoholism as you've already right yeah we've 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 kind of hit a couple of those already um yeah, I also think the the um, the age or the early age, the immaturity at which somebody first experiences abuse, violence themselves, yeah. I think it's a, such a huge determining factor. Um, you know, teaching kids to uh, how to deal with trauma, right? Um, there are, um, again, one-parent, two-parent households. There are a lot of different determining factors that kind of go into that. Um, I think that, um, you know, just to play on, on what you said before is people need to learn how to a- a- say the word help. Mm-hmm. People need to say the word, hey, I'm struggling and not feel bad on the inside about it. Um, asking for help is one of the strongest things any human being can do because they realize that I'm not strong enough yeah. and I need a little assistance right now. And so that opens uh, up the communication. Yeah. And so somebody then identifies the fact that they, they do have a condition uh, a disease in their head that that they're struggling with, and so they can um, they can then address it, right? Because you can't address something you don't know, and then once you address it, you have the option of continuing and getting help or turning the other direction. I think that's great. Um, I, I think uh, I think it's poignant that you bring up childhood trauma, you know, because a lot of the science that many of us who work in the field now utilize. Uh, points in the direction of, of in, you know, increased childhood trauma or high levels of childhood trauma lead to bigger problems as an adult. Um, but in particular, when it comes to childhood violence, um, I think that that's key not to miss for our listeners because uh, those of us who are parenting children right now or are mentoring kids right now are pretty much directly responsible for teaching them how to cope, right? Coping skills. And although violence doesn't necessarily fit the, the the classical definition of a coping skill it is a coping mechanism at the very least 
um, even if it's harming those around you or harming yourself. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I would just encourage our listeners to take note of that, especially if you're with with kids a lot or working in the youth space or have kids of your own. Like, you have to share your calm with them. Like, if you resort to violence yourself, that teaches a kid that violence is a solution. That's right. And and violence is a solution. It's just the wrong solution. Right. It's the solution that we want to stay away from. But we have to acknowledge that it's part of the whole struggle. Um, and then we want to fill our children with other arrows in their quiver, right, that they can use to address trauma, address uh, things that may be going on in their lives. I have a 17-year-old daughter, um, and I also have a 13-month-old daughter. So you can realize I had them both on the ends of my homelessness. They're the yeah. bookends there, right? And so I get to parent. Um, maybe in a completely different manner than I did before. And, and I realize all those things that you just mentioned. Um, we are completely responsible for our children and what they have access to. Uh, if we don't allow our children access to it, we can only blame ourselves for their result and, and what comes up from it. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I think communication is also big in reducing the stigma of mental illness right. because it acknowledges the fact that it's common. It's very commonplace. Um, so many people struggle with depression. You know, I've seen studies that say anywhere from like 30 to 40% of Americans right now struggle with depression. Absolutely. Well, look, you know, we, we talk about the news and, and then the violence that's on top of that. Um, it's important that we realize we're not alone in this struggle and that when we need help, we know who to turn to, knowing who to turn to and knowing that that path is an easy path. Um, is, is, is part of the communication piece that we as service providers need to get out to the community. And I think that um, to to go back on the destigmatizing piece, I think destigmatizing mental illness one hundred percent is important. And I think possibly de destigmatizing emotions a little bit too, because we have this notion of good and bad emotions. It's like happiness. Oh, that's my good emotion. You know, I, that's what I want to feel. But it. So let's say. In America, everybody, many people have the notion happiness is good, sadness, anger, fear, or bad emotions. How, how is that a different mentality than people in active addiction? People in active addiction are saying happiness is the emotion I want to feel. I'm going to do anything to get, go after it and get it. And that's the same mentality, even if people don't want to admit it. That's the same mentality that many, many people have. They just aren't using substances to get that. They're using maybe their job or their relationships or whatever as opposed to dealing with that anger sadness and other things in healthy ways that's uh again a great point something that i talk to a lot of people about i talk to I talk to my family about it i talk to my clients about it on a regular basis emotions and feelings and things so so here's kind of what happened with me right so I, I i drank hard for 20 years right and and uh i went down a really bad drug path um but when I, I, and I hadn't felt emotions for years, I, and I, I was aware of that. I knew that I had, my parents died when I was in active addiction. I felt a little bit, not, not nearly what I should have felt. Um, but when I stopped, three weeks later, emotions. And I didn't know how to deal with them. I didn't know what they were. I'm trying to identify emotions. What's this? What's this? What's this? Exiting homelessness, so many people told me, you're, um, you're a lot to handle. Um, you are, you're very energetic. Um, you're loud. Yes. To all of them. And, and that's fine. I accept that. But I've learned how to deal with the majority of these emotions. And, and I know that, look, if you're not happy, that's okay. 
I'm not trying to be happy every day of my life. Yeah. Um, and, and every second of each day, we're, emotions are a roller coaster, yeah. right? Sometimes we're going to be on cloud nine. Sometimes we're going to be on cloud zero. And that's okay. Um, it, it's all about how we deal with them and not, and, and not reaching for you know, something to cope. Right, we don't we don't want um, bad coping mechanisms. We want those good quivers in our uh, er, arrows in our quiver. We don't want the bad ones. Yeah, that's huge. So, do you have any advice for listeners who may want to help? Um, number one, reduce the stigma of of mental illness, like we've been discussing, but also in addition to that, help prevent and or reduce violence in their community. Because I think it, it's obvious here that that. Prevention is the best intervention when it comes to violence because there's not much you can do about it after it's already been perpetrated. So like, what, what advice would you offer those who want to make a difference? So I think one of the best ways that we can address violence with mental illness, if it occurs before it occurs, is with simple wraparound services with uh, organizations and centers when somebody leaves that initial plea for help and somebody cries out I need help what do we do we put them in an inpatient place just as quickly as we can because when somebody cries out for help that's that's the moment that we jump in and we do what we do yeah. and, and then when you know a 28-day program or something is over and they come back out into society now they're facing how to operate in society without any of the coping mechanisms they had before um, and oftentimes they have uh, plans on how to cope with, with issues and trauma and people in their lives and places, triggers. Um, but, the, but the truth is, um, if we want to change uh, what people are doing, we need to make sure that people who have these, these, um, these illnesses are connected. Right. And, and the wraparound services are huge to make sure that people are following up and holding them accountable. Um, and, and we as loved ones, right, when somebody has a mental illness, again, it's the communication. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Are you really fine? Really? Yeah. We have to dig through that and kind of get to the truth to actually help people. Right. I think it's, you know, when people ask me how I'm doing today, I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing great, I'll tell you I'm doing great and it's a great day to be alive, whatever. If I'm having a bad day, I'll say, look, man, it's a really bad day today. It's okay. We're going to get through it. My, my, I woke up again today. I'm going to go to sleep today with the roof over my head and a bed. Yeah. We're going to wake up tomorrow, and we get to do this again. Yeah. yeah. And I do just want to warn our listeners, because this, this is uh, something that I do as well, which is when you ask, like, oh, how are you? And then you follow up with, no, how are you? Like, tell me. Yeah. You are going to get so many weird looks from your family and your friends the first time you do it, but then you're going to be the favorite person that they see that day once they know man, they really do want to listen to me. They really do care about what I have to say. It can really, it changes your relationship and it's for, for the better. So I would definitely agree with that. Absolutely. And I think, again, it's that initial, it's that initial fear of breaking the ice around mental illness. It's, we have a fear of it and it is, it's just breaking the ice. As soon as that ice is broken, we get the whole flood of, of everything. It's like Niagara Falls. That's what I, I tell people that I say, I ask people how they are. And then they, they say, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling a little bit the second time. And so I bring them into my office and it's Niagara Falls of what's going on. And so we've just got to get to the very bottom of that. So awesome. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your story and yeah, your thoughts you and your wisdom and your expertise. It's been a real honor hearing from you and uh, it's, it's been enlightening. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you guys.
Appreciate you. Keep up the good work at Family Promise. Give our best to the whole team over there, okay? Will do. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, that wraps up Episode 9 of Season 3. Thank you all so much for tuning in again this month. Next month, the month of November 2023, will be the final episode of Season 3. And we're excited to dive into the topic of prevention with one of our community partners, especially as it relates to mental health and addiction. So we hope you'll tune in again. Thanks so much for listening.